All right, Psalm 32 this evening. If you have not turned there yet, if you'll turn with me uh, to Psalm 32, another one of those psalms in the collection of 150 psalms that tends to be maybe a little bit more popular and familiar. It's one of uh, David's psalms of uh, penitence. The idea is it's a psalm where he seems to clearly be focusing on the reality of repentance, turning away from sin and forgiveness and experiencing the forgiveness of the Lord for our sins and failures at times in our lives. And we cannot be certain. Many tend to believe that Psalm 32 is David's reflection upon the time in his life after he had one of you may say his greater moral failures when he entered into sin and transgression against the Lord. Uh, we can't be certain that that is the exact time David is referring to. There were many times in David's life, just like you and I, where he sinned and he failed. Uh, we certainly have our fair share of occasions where we make mistakes. We battle the regret and guilt of our own sin. Times when we take our own little stubborn tours of maybe rebellion or disobedience against the Lord. And then, of course, like David, there may be a few occasions in our life's journey where uh, we kind of just really, in a very grievous way, make some pretty hefty and major mistakes in our lives. And I think, honestly, the reflection of Psalm 32 is the same whether it's maybe the biggest life mistake and most grievous sin or error that we've committed against God or against others, or whether it's just the occasional times when we fail and don't deal with our sins for a season of time. Again, we can't be dogmatic. I think the psalm still applies either way, but the backdrop that many believe David is referring to here, and it would seem to give some degree of context, is uh, the occasion, Second Samuel 11 and 12, around that section where we know that David in the time of his life and when he was reigning as king was very prosperous. He was doing very well and in his prosperity, he began to get very comfortable. He started to let his guard down a little bit spiritually and that tends to be something that is a threat to good occasions in our life. You know, when things are difficult or life's hard, you know, there's something about difficulty and hardship that does tend to keep us just a little bit more alert we stay a little bit more on our toes. Maybe we're a little bit more dependent upon God. But when things kind of go into a season of ease, when we're in the green pastures and the still waters, sometimes we, uh, that can tend to be an occasion where we kind of let our guard down a little bit. We're not paying attention. And we kind of get ourselves set up a little bit more for the sucker punch of the devil. And I think many of us can look back at times in our life and realize, yeah, that's kind of what happened. I got a little sloppy. I got a little you know, lazy, I let my guard down and then bam, you know, something uh, happened or I fell flat on my face. Well, that, that happens in the spiritual life as well. And David at a time when things were going really well, it tells us rather than being out on the battlefield where he should have been really as a king and particularly a military king and a general, David was very successful in military campaigns. The Bible says the Lord preserved him wherever he went. But in that time, David kind of began to get comfortable and at ease. He was letting his own military commanders fight the battle out in the uh, fields of conflict for him. And he was in the springtime of the year, it says, when times that kings should have been out to war. David was just hanging out around the house, was wandering around his 
palace uh, precincts and enjoying the leisure. And it tells us that he saw a very beautiful woman, Bathsheba, uh, bathing. And at that point, again, rather than David, just reeling in with self-control, his own lust and his own desire, David pressed past, no doubt that initial conviction and kind of blinking warning light, the check engine light, and, and David inquired. He invited her to come to his house, and one thing led to another, ultimately, no, and David, before he knew it, ended up having a sexual experience with Bathsheba, who was married, of course, we know, to Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, which was one of his uh, chief Uh, military soldiers out in the battlefield. David knew this man's wife, so uh, he not only has sex with someone else's wife, but it's someone he actually knows, which makes it all the more grievous. And then, of course, after that happened, David feeling the guilt and understanding the error of what he just did, rather than just deal with the situation right away, blow the whistle on himself, which you know we always see in the scripture, and David alludes to it again here, that is always the best thing to do when we fail. The sooner we blow the whistle, the sooner we play umpire and referee on ourselves, rather than waiting for someone else to blow the whistle and throw the penalty flag on us. The best thing to do is just to deal with it and to acknowledge it. Well, David didn't do that. And instead, remember, he wanted to kind of cover up what he did. And so he entered down that path of cover up. He then brought Uriah home and thought, okay, you know, what should I do here? Because remember what he was informed not too long afterwards was not only had he committed adultery with this woman, but now she was pregnant. And now a small problem became a much bigger problem. And so David's idea of cover up went even further. And he thought, here's what I'll do. I'll bring Uriah the Hittite home, her husband. I'll get him drunk. I'll encourage him to go home and to spend time with his wife. He'll have relations with her. He'll be thankful I let him come off the battlefield and he'll think it's his baby and the secret will be kept safe. Well, secret sin never stays secret uh, long-term because eventually God always brings everything to the light. That's just a good reality to always remember when we believe the lie that any sin can be secret for any period of time in our lives. And of course, remember Uriah comes home and he is so noble of an individual. He says to David, I can't do that. I can't go home and be intimate with my wife when all of my comrades are out in a combat zone. They can't go home to their wives. And so he, again, refuses to go home and have natural relations with his own wife. Imagine how much this must have really been convicting David, who just selfishly satisfied him with another man's wife. When David had his own wife and access to all the pleasure he wanted, Uriah is saying, King, I greatly appreciate it, but I can't do that. I will wait. Even though it's my wife, I will refrain myself. My comrades are on the field. If they're making those kind of sacrifices, then I need to make those same kind of sacrifices. So David has another problem. Great. Now I got to cover this up even better. So David sends him out to the battlefield, comes up with this plan to get Uriah right in the heat of the battle. So he ends up getting killed very quickly in battle. And then David, of course, tries to step in and play as if he's the hero in the story, further cover up. He says, look, that's really sad. Uriah was a great guy, and his wife's pregnant now from when he came home to visit. Um, So let me marry this poor widow, and I'll take the child and make him a prince of the king. And so David enters into this whole thing where he marries Bathsheba and indicates the idea that he's going to be noble and raise the son there for Uriah. And again, this whole thing is just this cover-up. And the next day, it looked like David got away with murder, literally. The murder of Uriah, the adultery that he had with Bathsheba before Uriah was put to death— 
and now a pregnant woman as the result of this. And it looked like he got away with everything because the next day he was still the king of Israel. It was still business as usual. But yet David was struggling internally because we know that it was a period of about maybe nine months to a year that David did not deal with this and was able to keep his secret plot going and keep it hidden and not dealing with this until ultimately Nathan the prophet, remember, comes and he rebukes David. And the Holy Spirit reveals to Nathan the prophet what was going on. And God, in his love for David, doesn't let David stay in that undealt with condition of his sinful mistakes because God didn't want to make him feel miserable. God actually wanted to make him feel a whole lot better. And God knew he was more miserable being guilty and keeping that under wraps than it coming to light and being dealt with so that healing could come into David's life. And so he could be liberated from what he describes in the psalm here. And as soon as it comes to light, David acknowledges it, he owns it, he confesses it, and Nathan says, and the Lord has forgiven your transgression. Now, if those are the circumstances that David from the backdrop is writing the psalm, then it makes all the more sense why he's expressing the things that he would be declaring here. Look with me in Psalm 32. As he's now dealt with this sin, it's no longer hidden, it's no longer private and being covered up. He says, verse 1 of Psalm 32, Blessed, oh how happy or blessed, is he whose transgression is forgiven. That's what Nathan assured him of. As soon as he acknowledged his sin, right away he heard the Lord has forgiven your sin, David. You've acknowledged it. You've confessed. In the moment of David's confession, the forgiveness of the Lord was extended to him, cleansed and forgiven, pardoned from what he had done, guilt against God. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute. The idea is, you know, uh, add to his account, impute iniquity or wrongdoing. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse three says, when I kept silent, notice my bones grew old. Though my, through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden, that is, any longer. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David here, expressing the condition he's now in having dealt with the sin and acknowledging as well in verses three and four what it was like before he dealt with the sin and brought it into the light and confessed it and acknowledged it, taking ownership of it openly. Uh, and what the Lord did in graciousness as soon as he chose to bring the situation before the Lord in a right way and handle the situation. Again, you notice in verses one and two there, the three different words that the Holy Spirit uses to reference David's failure. We've talked about these before. He mentions verse one, transgression. He mentions verse two, sin being covered. And then in verse, excuse me, verse one, he mentions sin. And then in verse two, he mentions that term iniquity. And these are three different terms, really all describing moral failure, disobedience to God, but kind of in different ways. Again, the word transgression, as we said before, the word transgression speaks of willful defiance. It speaks of knowingly doing what's wrong and consciously just choosing to do it in just an act of rebellion and defiance. 
And clearly this was what David did. David knew very clearly as a lover of the Lord and someone who knew the law of God that the Bible said, thou shall not commit adultery. There's the line in the sand. Thou shall not commit adultery. Very clear. David in willful defiance said, I don't care. I want to satisfy myself right now. And so he in willful defiance, knowing what he was going to do was wrong, chose to just completely defiantly rebel against that for his own selfish satisfaction. Thou shall not murder. There's the line clearly drawn in the sand. You're not supposed to murder people. Again, David, knowing that that was clearly wrong, consciously chose, I don't care. I want to keep the cover up going. I'm hoping somehow I won't have to take responsibility for the wrong thing I've done. He consciously just defied that and murdered Uriah to try and get rid of him, to try and keep the process going. So David certainly was guilty of transgression, of just willful acts of disobedience. And, you know, from time to time, we all find ourselves doing that, do we not? There are times when we clearly know something is wrong, and yet in our anger or our hurt or our lust or our strong desire, we clearly know something's wrong, and we just do it anyway, right? I mean, who hasn't done that with their words before? You clearly know the Lord is saying, do not say one more sentence in this argument. And you say, you wait out in the car. We need to finish this conversation. And you just, you just blow past the red light. The Lord's saying, stop talking or don't say that hurtful thing. And you're thinking, no, I just, I, they deserve one more zinger. I just, and again, we do that in our speech, in our conversations. We do that from time to time in our actions. We clearly know something is wrong, but in the selfishness or the greediness or the wickedness of our own heart, we choose to do something we know is a violation of scripture. We know is wrong just to satisfy ourselves in some sinful, rebellious way. That's transgression. And we all do that from time to time, willfully disobey the Lord consciously. He mentions sin in verse one, and sin speaks of missing the mark. That is, there are times where we unintentionally just miss the mark. The, the word in the, the Greek, the New Testament word, harmatia, speaks of how they would fire arrows through a ring. And when you missed the mark, they would yell out harmatia or sin. The idea was you've missed the mark. You weren't trying to miss the mark. In fact, you were actually trying. You were trying as hard as you could to fire and to hit the mark, but every once in a while, because you are imperfect, right? Even the best of archers still miss the mark on occasion. Nobody's 100%. No, again, that's the idea. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. We don't hit the mark 100% of the time. You don't have to even consciously, willfully want to be a sinner. Well, I'm not into transgression. Well, but you sin, though. <laughs> even if you don't think you're into transgression, you know, I've never done anything defiantly wrong against God. I'm not that rebellious. Well, that's okay. You're still a sinner because no matter how hard you try, you still inadvertently say things you shouldn't. You think things you shouldn't sometimes, right? You do things on occasion and whether unintentionally or intentionally, you still miss the mark. Nobody's perfect. We all err and that in the same way makes us guilty before God. You know, we have our slip ups, we have failures and mistakes. And again, so that, that's the idea there. Defiant conscious acts of disobedience unintentional errors. We're constantly making mistakes, which make us guilty before God. We're sinning, uh, you know, through each and every day of our lives to some degree. And he mentions as well iniquity in verse two. And that just speaks of someone who is bent or crooked. That is that there's something 
perverse and broken inside of us that makes us gradually bent towards doing what's wrong. And you know, that reality of where you find yourself from time to time saying, man, I'm, I'm just really broken inside. Like there's something in me that is just crooked. Something in me just makes me think crooked, makes me want to behave crooked. And it's just that inward bent towards doing what's wrong rather than doing what's right. That we just sense happens within us, in our mind, in our attitudes internally so often. And David mentions all three of these because he had dealt with all three of them. But he says, well, how blessed is the person whose transgression is forgiven. That you know that God has pardoned it. That God has forgiven. He said, look, yeah, yes, I know you did that but I forgive you. I erase the guilt from your account. I'm not holding that against you. Others may still be angry at you, but I'm not angry at you. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're washed clean. The Bible tells us how much more in the New Testament, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That There's forgiveness to us completely available in the cross of Christ. David found it prior to the cross that God is a forgiving God. He's ready to pardon, the Bible tells us whose sin is covered. Again, they knew the covering of the Old Testament perspective. We know it in the cleansing atonement of the blood of Christ, that our sins are covered. The idea is that every transgression, every sin, sometimes we tend to think, man, but you don't know what I've done. You know what God says? Yes, I do. And then God says, I got it covered. I got it covered. I, it's covered. Jesus took care of it because the Bible tells us that when Christ died for our sins, he died for the sins of the whole world. So, so that we don't have to wonder, is one of our mistakes or one of our grievous errors or even the big thing, right? Maybe you have your big thing like David, where you can totally relate to David. I got a big thing in my life. Maybe even nobody else knows about it, but you and God. But, but you may think that big thing, and that's always the thing your mind goes back to that you just wonder, oh, but, but that big thing. And God says, I got it covered. What Jesus did covered it. It covered everything. It's finished, Jesus declared upon the cross. And David said, oh, how blessed it is to know your sins are forgiven, that your, your sin is covered, and whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That is, he doesn't impute to your account constant guilt. That he's removed guilt from your account and made you righteous instead. And that's exactly what the New Testament teaches happens through our faith and trust in Christ, that he doesn't impute guilt to your account. Instead, he imputes righteousness and a standing before God of holiness where you're accepted in God's sight. And you know what's necessary for that? David mentions the end of verse two, the very first thing that's critical for that whole thing, to experience the blessing of knowing that you are forgiven and your sins are covered. How do you experience that blessing? Well, it starts with a spirit of sincerity before God. He says right there, in whose spirit there is no what? Deceit. That is, you're not being deceptive anymore. You're not being deceitful. You're not deceiving yourself that you're okay with God when you're not okay with God. And, and, and not wanting to acknowledge that you are a guilty sinner just like every other human being on the earth and just as much before a holy God as every other person. You're not deceiving yourself about that. You're not deceiving others in the sense of living in deceit and trying to hide things and cover them up. Again, when your spirit comes to a place of genuine sincerity and there's no deceit going on anymore, he says, when you and I come to that place where we get real with our failures, we get real with our sin and honest with our mistakes, he says, the one in whose spirit is no deceit, that's the man who experiences the blessedness 
of knowing their transgression is forgiven. He says, verse three, what he experienced. Look, when I kept silent, that is before he dealt with it, when he was hiding it, he wasn't confessing it to God. He wasn't talking it through with the Lord and taking ownership for his mistake, nor was he certainly acknowledging it to others. He says, when I kept silent, that is I hid my sin and I just tried to ignore it. I just tried to brush it under the rug and act like it didn't happen. When I kept silent, he says, my bones grew old. That is like, I felt like literally it was aging me. You ever look at somebody sometime who maybe just lived a really hard life and, and, and they just lived really hard and fast and, you know, maybe you, you look at them and you think, man, I mean, and they literally look years older than maybe what they really are. The idea is that just is like, whoa, it's just like that hardcore immoral living is literally, it's like just aging them. It's destroying them because they're living so contradictory to what God's best and healthy plan and way of life is. And David says, literally says, it, it was like my bones were growing old. He says, through my groaning all day long. The idea is groaning like he, he was in pain. He was miserable. It was just eating him up inside. He says, my groaning all day long, like a person groaning because they're just un, you know, unhappy or groaning because they're just feeling miserable. You ever felt miserable and you just groan because you feel so miserable? David says, that's what I was going through. In, this is describing a feeling of guilt here. Again, we, we, we fail to realize so many times that one of the most destructive forces on earth is guilt. It's guilt. Guilt is a very powerful destructive force in the lives of people that really messes people up mentally, emotionally, even physically to the place where David's describing that here, groaning. He says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me he says god i just felt like i had a weight on top of me felt like i had a weight on my chest it was just hard to breathe i just felt like there was just this heaviness like everywhere i went i was lugging around a sled full of bricks behind me he says it's just like your hand was heavy upon me when i wasn't dealing with it and my vitality that is my energy he says literally was being turned into the drought of summer. I was so dry and it was so difficult. And notice he says there's Selah, and that's that term again. What? Think about this. And what's the Holy Spirit saying? Think about this reality. That's what it's like when we have undealt with sin in our lives. When we don't deal with the sin in our lives, or worse, we try and cover up and hide sin that's happened in our lives and we're not addressing it and dealing with it, He's saying, think about this because that will be your experience. Perhaps it even could be your experience if that could be the case with you this evening. That to some degree you know that, and the longer you go, the more you will know that. The heaviness, the miserableness of guilt, the you know, just the feeling like life is being just sapped out of you just in the way that you're experiencing all those things. Again, because guilt is a huge motivator. God intends guilt to be something that drives us to a place of finding forgiveness. But undealt with guilt can just ravage and destroy a life. Look, this is one of the reasons why I can tell you as well why the word of God teaches us, even in raising our children, to to some degree discipline our children and tells us don't spare the rod. The idea is discipline, spank, some painful consequence for a bad decision. Because you know why? If you let kids misbehave, and you don't discipline them with some form of pain or punishment for their wrong behavior, they'll get wacko. 
But when a kid does what's wrong and you hold him to account for it, and to some degree, whether through spanking or another way, you bring together a painful consequence attached to a bad decision, not only does it teach them not to do what's wrong anymore, but you know what you really do even more? You free them from guilt because the painful experience allows them to be able to release the feeling of guilt and then to experience restoration with you as a parent and realize they can go back, okay, the guilt is gone. The painful experience drives away the guilt. And look, guilt is something that many people, even as adults, are living with in a way that's just destroying their lives. And how wonderful God has the antidote for guilt. It's forgiveness. It's taking away that guilt and regret that we live with through his forgiveness and covering our sin, of course, ultimately through our Lord Jesus Christ. So David says, when did this begin to cease? He says, verse 5, when I acknowledged my sin to you. That is confession. He took ownership of it. At some point, we have to take ownership and acknowledge our sin. And notice, not acknowledging our sin to a priest or to another person, but acknowledging our sin to God. David says in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And genuine, sincere confession begins between us and God. That's the breaking point right there. I'm not saying that there's not a, a balanced way in which we acknowledge our sins to others as well. That is important too, and that's biblical. The Bible tells us that we should openly acknowledge our sins to others, especially if we've sinned against them or they need to be aware of what we've done and we need to admit it and take ownership and responsibility for it. That's a part of the process as well. It's also part of the healing because the Bible says, confess your trespasses one to another and then pray for one another that you may be healed. So it is a important part to do that. But the first acknowledgement must be acknowledging our sin to God. And he says, my iniquity I have not hidden. The idea is David brought it into the open. No more hiding anymore. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And David says, and then when I did that, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You know, is that not the most wonderful experience in contrast to the worst experience of guilt? Right? Guilt is the most miserable of human experiences. And you know what is the exact opposite of that? Forgiveness. The exact opposite of that is having that guilt and regret lifted off of your life and experiencing the forgiveness of the Lord after you've made no more excuses and come before him to honestly confess and acknowledge your sin. And David here is just so thankful for this reality describing what he experienced and he says verse six for this cause that is because of this reality that when you don't deal with your sin it's miserable and self-destructive mentally emotionally physically because of the reality that it is such a blessing to know that you're forgiven and that all you have to do is acknowledge your sin to the lord and he'll forgive you because of those things he says for that cause Everyone who is godly, that is, has some degree of relationship with God, shall or should pray to you. Because of sin's harmful effect, and he says because of the opportunity to be forgiven and restored, people should turn to you, he says, with their sin. Notice verse 6, in a time when you may be found, he says. Why there's opportunity before it's too late, he's saying. Surely in a flood of great waters... They shall not come near him. The idea is he says, look, before the tidal wave comes, before the tsunami sinks the whole battleship altogether, he says, while there's opportunity and because of what sin does, he says, 
The wisest thing to do is when the opportunity is there is to go to you while the opportunity exists before the floodwaters come, before the flood of great waters completely drown our life in some personal way and people end up doing harmful things to themselves, ending their lives or again just letting the things guilt will drive a person to do is completely destructive. He says, verse 7, as I come to you, Lord, in the time of my great failures, you are my hiding place. The idea is the Lord says, look, you come and, and hide under my care. I forgive you. Others may be harsh to you still, but you, you come. I forgive you. You are welcome. Come. I'll become your hiding place. And he says, Lord, you shall preserve me from trouble. The idea is preservation from further trouble, painful consequences. Again, because the sooner we deal with it, the sooner we begin to turn back the consequences from the severity that they could be, the longer we persist in wrongdoing. He says, you surround me with songs of deliverance. Again, think about this. He says, Lord, you invite me in. You don't reject me. As soon as I deal with my sin, you just say, come into my house. I'll fellowship with you. I'll protect you. And he says, you begin to rejoice with me, singing songs of my great deliverance. Verse 8, it seems now this is the Lord's response in the psalm. This seems now that you have the voice of God directly speaking by the Spirit. Notice, the Lord says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. So notice, what's one of the blessings that God brings after we deal with our sin correctly? God says, okay, we've dealt with your sin now. You've got a humble heart. Now you've got a teachable spirit. Now I can instruct you in the way in which you should go, the right way. A, so that you don't repeat those same mistakes again. B, now that you find yourself maybe navigating some of the consequences and the calamity of what your sin did bring on the natural human level, but God says, but that's okay. Listen, I'm on your team. You hide with me. You stay with me. This is a time of deliverance. And he says, and now I'm gonna instruct you and teach you the way to go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you to know how to navigate through this. I'll guide you forward. I'll be your good shepherd to instruct and teach you in the way in which you should go. Because what happens in a time of great failure, what do we find ourselves doing? It's like we're disoriented. Lord, I don't even know what to do now. Where do I go? What do I do? I've made such a mistake. I've made such a mess. Lord, what do I do? And he says, I'm going to show you the way out of this. I'm going to show you how to navigate through this and get on the other side of the storm. He says, I'll guide you. And notice he even says, verse 8, I'll guide you with my eye. That's very personal there. Guide you with my eye. I mean, think about that. You have to be really in tune with somebody to be guided by their eye, right? I mean, and this happens with you know, certainly with, with married couples, you know, the person that you are so close and intimate with your spouse, sometimes without a word, right? You can kind of guide them what your intention or preference is just with your eye, right? You just kind of, we say, he's giving me the eyes or she gave me the eye there. And, and with, with the simple look of an eye, you, the idea is kind of like, um, please do this or stop doing that or bring this over here, or again, a parent with a child. Sometimes they can just give a look, right? That's the idea here. Such closeness with the Lord that you can literally be guided just by the eye of the Lord. The idea is like, again, a master who can just look at something at the table and his butler knows because his eye is on his master and there's such a close connection that the butler knows he looked at his coffee cup. That means it's half full. He wants it filled up and warmed up his coffee cup. And that's the idea that we live in such closeness and intimacy with the Lord that he literally not only instructs and guides us, but he guides us with his eye. 
because you're looking into the face of the Lord. You have good relationship with him, and you can just kind of look and say, all right, Lord, I know, what you, I know what you're telling me to do. I see what you want me to do. And you can just be led by the Lord as he guides you with his eye. Notice verse 9, he says, in contrast, the Lord again speaking, do not be like the horse. Now, this is the opposite. Or like the mule. What are they known for? Stubbornness, right? God says, don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which have to be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near. So the idea there is God saying, don't be stubborn. I want to guide you and instruct you. In fact, I just want to guide you with a glance of my eye. Please, the Lord is saying, don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stubborn like a mule, like a horse, that the only way you can turn a horse is by putting right the bit and the bridle. And what does that do? The idea is the pressure or the pain or the discomfort is required to steer the animal. And God's saying, I don't want to have to guide you by pain. I don't want to have to... You know, because you're being stubborn, use strong pressure upon your life or pain or discomfort to have to guide you. The Lord will use that in our lives, and we all know that too, right? The Lord has, if that's what it takes, the Lord will put the bit or the bridle in, and I'll say, okay, I can make it get uncomfortable. I can make it get difficult. I can use pain as a way of persuasion, but he's saying, I don't want to do that. Don't be stubborn, he says. Be sensitive, be yielded, that I could just guide you with the eye, he says, he wants us to be just led by him in that very beautiful way. And then verse 10 and 11, David seems to perhaps be chiming back in here, or I don't know. Uh, maybe it's the Lord indicating verse 10 as well, but great statement nonetheless in light of these things. He says, many sorrows, notice not some, many sorrows, regrets, sadness, grief, many sorrows shall be to the wicked. The idea there is to the one who persists in an evil path, to the wicked, to the wicked person, to the person who persists in a path of wrongdoing, of evil, of wickedness, God's promises, here's what that will result in. Many sorrows, many sorrows. You know, maybe there's a time we can look back on our life when we were persistently living in a path of wrongdoing. Was it really wonderful? It usually results in many sorrows, right? And, and the world tries to sell this idea to us and to our young people. Listen, live wild and free and selfish and sinful and do this and, you know, and just live in complete sinful craziness and you'll, I mean, you'll just be so happy and life will be so great. And what they're not telling people is the reality is that when you take the camera off of the lying commercial or the fake advertisement or the movie, those people are dealing with many sorrows, grief and afflictions and hardships and pain and heartbreak. And their lives are filled with sorrows, filled with sorrows not with happiness and joy and celebration. Again, that's what the devil does, right? He baits sin well, he puts the bait on there, and then he just yanks the hook into the mouth afterwards. And again, the word of God speaks to us honestly. He says, look, for those who persist in a wicked or an evil path, what that's gonna result in is many sorrows. We, we don't want that. We want the opposite. Verse 10, he says, but contrast, he who trusts in the Lord, that is, trusts that the Lord's way is right. 
Trust that the Lord's way of doing things is proper. He who trusts in the Lord, Lord, I'm gonna trust you. I'm not gonna give in to the compromise and temptation to do what's wicked and wrong. I'm being pressured to do it, Lord, but I'm gonna trust you that your way is the right way. He says, he who keeps living obediently, trusting the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Again, what's mercy? Not getting what you do deserve. Notice, just because you're somebody who trusts the Lord doesn't mean you live perfect. You still blow it once in a while, right? We all know that. It's one thing to persist in a path of wickedness and incur many sorrows. It's another thing to say, Lord, I trust you, but I'm not perfect still. I'm still going to fall. I'm going to make mistakes, but Lord, I trust you, and I'm going to try and live according to your ways to the best of my ability, loving and trusting you. But Lord, I know I'm still going to blow up, but God says that's okay because my mercy is going to surround you because I see your heart. And I see that you're trying to do the best you can. And so my mercy is going to be there in your stumblings. And I'm going to preserve you from many of the sorrows that people in the world experience who rebel against God. So verse 11, he concludes by saying, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Again, as we talked about before, notice, be glad, how? In the Lord. Sometimes it's hard to be glad in our circumstances. Sometimes it's hard to be glad in our present experiences, to be glad even on this earth. But the Bible says, be glad in the Lord. If you're in the Lord, you're in a relationship with the Lord, he just says, be glad for that reason. Why? Because blessed is the person who's transgressed. Your sins are forgiven. (laughs) At least your sins are forgiven, right? At least you could say that. Your sins are forgiven. You're not guilty before God. You're in right relationship with your creator. When you die, this life was the most difficult thing you ever experienced. You know, that's the reality that we have to remember that for you and I who know the Lord Jesus Christ and our sins are forgiven, this earthly experience is the most hell that you'll ever have to go through. He saved the best for last. It only gets better. On the other side of that, for people who don't know the Lord, This earthly experience is the most heaven they'll ever get. Because hell's coming afterwards. It's just going to get worse. Many sorrows are going to turn into weeping and gnashing of teeth eternally forever. You and I have been spared from that. That's something of why he says to here, look, did David's mistakes go away? No, they didn't, right? They were still his mistakes. But he said, here's what I found. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. So therefore, Be glad in the Lord, David could say, and rejoice, you righteous, if you're in right relationship with God, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The idea is upright is not crooked. Your heart's not crooked before the Lord. You got a pure heart in right standing before the Lord. He says, you got something to shout for joy about, something to be joyful and something to celebrate.